Hello, I'm Kate Jabot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. A laser-armed fighter jet that can read the pilot's mind, Tempest, is the concept for the future of the RAF's fighting capability. But can it become a reality as ministers order a first version to be flying in a few years? There is always a compromise. I'd love a Klingon death ray, but that would probably cost a hell of a lot of money, probably beyond technology's day. But it is exciting that we're talking about having a flying capability within the next five years. Also this week, after years of UK talk on tackling sexual exploitation around the world, British military personnel are banned from buying sex while serving overseas. It is something as part of women, peace and security that we need to be tackling. It can't be imposed top down. It has to come top down, bottom up. As we learn lessons from Ukraine, we go training with British soldiers on exercise in an abandoned block of flats in Leeds. And what did President Putin want from his visit to Iran? There has been some speculation from the Americans that there are also talks about weapons going on, particularly drones. For several years, we've been hearing about a new high-tech fighter jet called Tempest that is the future of the RAF, while the current cutting-edge plane, the F-35, is a fifth-generation fighter. Tempest is supposed to be so advanced it will be classed sixth-generation, packed with technology once deemed science fiction. So this would be the first fast jet with a laser-directed energy weapon on it. One of the things we're looking at for Tempest is a software reconfigurable wearable cockpit in our Striker helmet. We're looking at battery technologies and, and using a lot less hydraulics. This has got 24 channels on it that fit all over the head. So live during the flight we can start to see when they're getting overloaded, if they're getting stressed. We also know there's a lot of technology that we don't even fully understand yet. Those are some of the concepts for Tempest from BAE Systems. But so far, that's all Tempest is, concepts and research. Now they must be rapidly turned into reality. The government says a prototype will be flying in five years' time. And seven years after that, it expects the first Tempest jets to be in service. I'm really excited, particularly because of the huge national capability that it involves. As we're seeing with the war in uh, Ukraine, technology is such a big asymmetric advantage for the West and fighter aircraft control of the air is so vital in future wars. Air Vice Marshal Sean Bell is a former fighter pilot. He led a strategic review of combat air before he left the RAF 10 years ago. So he has a good idea what the service needs from Tempest. These aircraft are a very, very complex amalgam of engines, technology, sensors, defensive aids, weapons, etc. And one of the things that the Tempest promises is a whole load of new capabilities, but particularly uh, bring the synthesis of all of these capabilities so one pilot can operate it most effectively in a multi-role environment. And what other additionals uh, might you not need but could want? Inevitably, things like the thrust of the engines, I would love to have more thrust, but inevitably technology limits that. It would be having better sensors, but all of these things come at a cost. Because clearly, I'm an ex-fighter pilot myself, I'd love a Klingon death ray, but that would probably cost a hell of a lot of money to develop and probably be on technology's day. And there is always a compromise, and that's part of the challenge that uh, 
programs like Tempest bring together. But it is exciting that we're talking about having a flying capability within the next five years. And that's an immense challenge for the program. And we've been hearing about Tempest for as a concept for years. We've seen models at air shows, but actually they've just been ideas. Now, actual decisions have to be taken. How hard and how risky is the decision-making process at this point? It's incredibly difficult. You go from a concept, though, drawing board, as to why the nation wants this, what it needs to do. And then you have to put a peg in the sand and say, right, we're going to have something flying by this date. And that forces everybody's hand. And that will be full of risks. There will be all sorts of compromises along the way because one company will say, well, if you give me another couple of years, I'll be able to generate even more capability. But there will be compromises, but that focuses all of industry and also allows the British government to talk to other nations to find out whether they're interested in joining part of that team. Yes, very tricky decisions. What would you be advising the people making those decisions on Tempest right now? I think the biggest single thing, which it's easy to say and difficult to do, is that the platforms themselves endure. I mean, the Americans have a B-52 bomber, which will probably be in service for over 100 years. Ideally, what you want to be able to do is strip out all of the technology and replace it. In other words, every year, ideally, you'd be able to put a new chip in to keep pace with technology. That's a lot more difficult than it actually sounds of course, the oldest typhoons are already being retired. The plan relies on Tempest being <clears throat> right and ready in time. The government wants the first Tempest in service by 2035. Can we really go from concept and drawing board to flying cutting edge fighter jets in little more than 10 years? I think we have to. We can't take 25 to 30 years to go from concept to getting a frontline aeroplane because the rate of change of technology is so fast that if we keep doing that, the aircraft will be out of date before it even comes off the production lines. And just finally, if you were still serving in the RAF, what would it mean to you to fly Tempest? I, 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 mean, I was lucky. I flew the Harrier, but I also ended up flying the Typhoon um, only once. But it was such an amazing aeroplane, made a lot easier to fly by computers. But it was still, you're still working hard as a pilot to, to read and interpret all of the screens. The next generation of fighters are bringing together all of the sensors to make it as easy as possible for the, for the pilot. Helmet-mounted displays, auto-queuing, sensors that can look through the base of the aircraft. It's a really exciting boy's own world. It's not just about the flying and sitting in one of the most powerful uh, bits of equipment in the world. The acceleration is just phenomenal. So it, it really is an incredibly exciting program and it's going to be state-of-the-art which for any pilot is is the cream of the crop it's something worth worth looking forward to so can i take from that you'd love to fly it i would love to fly it yes <laughs> retired air vice marshal sean bell there professor michael clark is with me once more uh, michael sean bell very clear there that having a flying tempest prototype in five years is both hugely exciting but also hugely ambitious how important is it to the ref that this works and therefore how big a gamble is it to be relying on something that's nothing more than concepts and research right now I mean, as Sean says, um, they have to because they have to keep moving along. The thing is that it's not that difficult to get an aeroplane flying, to get an airframe in the air, as Sean said. Uh, it's a matter of, you know, what engines do you put on it? What flight configurations do you, do you have? So actually having the aircraft in the air isn't the problem. The issue is what you put on it. And there are two big things here, which I think you know, we've been talking about. One is to make the pilot into the computer. Instead of having the pilot surrounded by computers, you make the pilot the computer, 
So the person thinks of what they want and the aircraft does it. And the second thing about this new technology is that it isn't one aircraft you're talking about. It's one aircraft with four or five robots flying with it, directed by that pilot. So each aircraft is its own little air group. And mm. that's the promise of sixth generation, if they can bring it all together. And Michael, Italy and Japan are being brought into the programme. Does that say we're worried about being able to do it alone or is it just about defence exports? No, no, it's because we can't do it alone. We can, we, we can never produce aircraft alone. I mean, Sean Bell said he started on Harriers. Well, that was the last aircraft that we produced ourselves. And what it reflects is the fact that the Germans and the French have got their own Tempest system. They're going for one air, one sort of air concept. We're going for another. But the fear is that Europe, in, in a way, can't afford two aircraft. And the danger is that our aircraft will kill off the European aircraft and vice versa. And that we'll get to 2035. And I really hope I'm wrong about this. And I hope that Sean Bell is right. But we'll get to 2035. Neither of us will have a Tempest aircraft and we'll buy American. And we'll look back in 2035 and say, why on earth in 2022 didn't we just buy American in the first? place. Michael, stay with us. Now, the links between militaries and sex workers stretch back centuries. They are, after all, two of the very oldest professions. But from now onwards, British personnel deployed overseas are banned from buying sex. Paying sex workers abroad, whether with money, goods or favours, is now an offence under a new joint service policy called Zero Tolerance to Sexual Exploitation and Abuse. While Britain has been championing global efforts against sexual exploitation of women, it is years behind NATO and many allies in making a rule like this. So we asked the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, why has it taken so long? Don't ask me. I'm the Defence Secretary who's now taken it over and I, I feel that life's moved on. It's a different generation. I was in the army in 1991 in Germany. You know, things are different. We want more and more women to be in our forces and we have to bear in mind that all that means a different environment and we have to set the parameters for those environment and and make very clear what's acceptable. Mr Wallace did suggest last year that this ban was on the way and effectively acknowledged that it's a big cultural change. He recalled how when he was an army officer in Belize in the 90s there was a brothel behind the main British base. Rowell's Rose Garden was well known in the British Army and former Royal Artillery soldier Sean Connolly wrote about it in his book Warning Order Belize. It was very close to the camera and it was built for the purpose of having the British soldiers on the doorstep, I think. Wow. So bespoke camp, you think? What was it like? I did go in there for a drink, uh, but nothing else. It was a large open room with uh, little subrooms in the back of the bar, if you like and then a large bar area. Soldiers being soldiers, there were a number of stories uh, and, and probably some evidence to support that. Some soldiers would blow a month's wages in a short time in Ralph's Rose Garden. And what was the army's attitude towards it? I'm not saying they condoned it, but a friend of mine who was a medic sergeant used to go there every week and the army medics used to go and treat the ladies for these SDIs. So not only did they know about it, but they certainly didn't do anything to stop the soldiers going there. There was no ban on anybody going there, if you like. Remember, this wasn't just soldiers at private rank. This was all ranks, as you had officers as well that would use the place. And do you have any idea about how much the culture around soldiers visiting prostitutes has or hasn't changed today? I mean, do you have still links to people in the forces and do they tell you about this kind of thing? 
Yeah, I do speak to serving soldiers through the groups and network that I, I belong to. You know, we're talking about this as if it's something strange. It would be like two soldiers saying, what are you having for your breakfast? <laughs> you know, it would, it would just be part of an everyday conversation. No different than saying, you know, when are you going to be cleaning your room or doing your boots or whatever. Sean Connolly, author of Warning Order Belize. Well, the former Labour MP Madeline Moon spent nearly a decade on the Commons Defence Committee, where she pushed for more protection and changes in attitude to women. So what does she think of this ban on service personnel buying sex overseas? To be honest, I, I read that and I thought, well, hang on. Women are frequently trafficked into this country as sex workers. So what are we saying here? It's not okay overseas, but it's okay in the UK. And I'm, I'm very nervous about that. The Ministry of Defence says it wants a 30% inflow of women into the armed forces. I just wonder how that 30% of women are going to feel about their colleagues frequently and as a matter of course, viewing it as acceptable to go off to brothels. I just think it shows a degree of hypocrisy to say it's not OK abroad, but it is OK in the UK. I suppose the difference, though, with this country is there is already a legal framework which can be used to tackle trafficking. There is, but it's not successful. So we know that large numbers of women are still being trafficked into the UK as sex workers. The policy also talks about gateway behaviours, such as visiting strip clubs, brothels or known red light districts. It doesn't ban these, as you say, but says certain cautions should be exercised because sexual exploitation might be happening in these places. Presuming from what you said, you don't think the strike's the right balance. Well, again, how do we ensure that members of the armed forces are not visiting the same sorts of establishments in the UK where women are being sexually exploited. It is almost a knee-jerk reaction. I think it's more to do with the discovery of the, uh, the murder in 2012 of Agnes Anduru. And yes, it is something as part of women, peace and security and targeting of women in conflict zones that we need to be tackling. I just wonder if it has been fully thought through about exploitation of a workforce here in the UK as well. The argument you might hear against a blanket ban like this is that when you have such a different life where you're working, sometimes fighting around the world, away from home a lot, you have far less opportunity to develop and maintain normal relationships. That for centuries, sex workers have helped offset that, and that's been good for militaries. What do you make of that argument? We're not living. Years ago, we're living now. If, if I talk to the average young woman, there is a, a lack of acceptance of sexual exploitation of women in a way that wasn't present or was not articulated even 30 years ago. So we are in a different time place and we are trying to attract a 30% inflow of women into the armed forces. Somehow that has to be addressed. Mm. Those memories that Sean Connolly talked of earlier are from the 80s. Uh, he says engaging sex workers is still very much part of British Army culture. Setting the rules is one thing, but the culture has to be changed too to make it all work. How can that be done? There has to be a culture of respect 
And that is still missing. It has to be women feeling absolutely solidly empowered to come forward and say, I'm being bullied. I'm being sexually harassed. I have been raped and know that their career will not be damaged. Know that they won't be ostracized within the unit and won't be told, stay quiet. It's not a good idea because people will just see you as a slag. You talk about empowering women. How do you get attitudes amongst the men to change? Oh, the men are absolutely responsible also for calling out other men. Hey, mate, you know, that's you went a bit far there. That's inappropriate. You shouldn't be saying that. She's a mate of mine, and I don't want her to be spoken to like that. That is also absolutely critical so that there is a culture of intolerance, of inappropriate language, behaviour, attitudes throughout the military. That's how change has to be embraced. Everyone has to embrace it. It can't be imposed top down. It has to come top down, bottom up. Former Labour MP Madeleine Moo. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep. The war in Ukraine has brought home the significance of fighting in built-up areas. But how authentic can training be for the real thing? Does the British Army, for instance, have suitable environments that can adequately challenge soldiers in preparing for urban combat? James Wharton has been on exercise in, with an infantry company in Leeds to see how the army is changing the way it trains for urban combat. A company assault in a built-up environment. On the face of it, nothing extraordinary. But this exercise is different. We're not on Salisbury Plain. This isn't in the village, the more common setting for urban training. In fact, we're in the inner city suburbs of Leeds. Major Simon Cox is the company commander leading the attack. It's uh, a block of flats due for demolition later on this autumn. And uh, before it's been demolished, we've been given the permission to train in there. Uh, it's a really good urban environment. Uh, usually a lot of our urban training takes place in quite a sterile, uh, slightly contrived training environment, whereas this is, this is real life, real flats with furniture, doors, windows, and all of those obstacles uh, to get in our way. The assault on a disused tower block is being carried out by B Company, 2 Royal Anglian, and assets from 2-1 Engineer Regiment. And they're up against some bad guys. For the exercise, that's being provided by soldiers from 4 Parachute Regiment, the local reservist unit in Yorkshire. Lance Corporal Harry Greenshields describes the benefits he and his colleagues are taking from the training. I think it's an experience, especially for our company, because I'd say 80% of our soldiers are really junior, so they certainly wouldn't have done anything like this before. And I know myself uh, and a couple of the other junior NCOs, this is the first time doing something in an urban scenario that is actually like a civilian place. So to go through it and learn things that we can't really learn while we're doing it in an army training area, it's just a really good benefit to the whole platoon, company and wider army. The exercise, which is being conducted in partnership with the West Yorkshire Fire Brigade, involves the troops moving into launch positions tactically and entails the soldiers tackling dangerous obstacles, assisting simulated casualties and the handling of captured enemy prisoners. Look away! Cross your legs! Cross your legs! Private Phoebe Mercer 
is impressed by the realism on offer in the tower block, which only a handful of months ago was lived in by dozens of families. So in terms of like when you go into the rooms, you've actually got like furniture and obstacles, which in urban environments that we've previously trained in is less so. After a few hours of loud bangs and perhaps some free entertainment for the locals, Endex is finally called by the officer in charge of the exercise. Now the men and women of Two Royal Anglian, known as the Poachers, can debrief and reflect on this most realistic of urban warfare training. James Wharton in Leeds for BFBS SITREP. Michael Clark, is urban warfare something the British Army has ever had to do at scale for real? We, when we think of Afghanistan, largely rural, the Balkans, peacekeeping. Urban environments in Northern Ireland, yes, but not a war scenario. Basra in Iraq, maybe? Uh, yeah, well, only partly, yeah, because even Basra was a fairly small uh, city. And, and you're right, I mean, the British Army hasn't done large-scale urban operations since the Second World War. And uh, those cases, you know, the, the Gulf War in 91 and 2003 in Afghanistan are not likely to be so typical in the future, particularly if we're now thinking in terms of European security, because Europe is already 85% urbanised. So 85% of the population live in urban areas. And so the expectation has to be that either in defence or attack or just uh, security in general, we're going to operate in urban areas. And you're absolutely right. We need to train for this. And the army is very acutely aware of that. But we've got to be able to do it at scale, which is why this uh, operation in Leeds was so good, I think, because mm. as the officer was saying, I mean, this is a real block of flats with doors and windows um, and all the sort of things that you don't think about uh, if you break windows uh, in order to fire through hollywood style chances are you're going to get cut things like that you can only train in a real urban environment and get a few cuts and bruises into the bargain now vladimir putin has left russia for only the second time since he launched war against ukraine he's met his iranian counterpart in the capital tehran on the official agenda syria because that's still taking up military effort from both countries, but also energy and Ukraine. Turkey's president also went to Tehran to join part of their summit and also for a one-to-one -one with President Putin. But what's this really about? Why has President Putin chosen Iran for such a symbolic trip? Bridget Kendall spent 30 years as a BBC journalist, including time as Moscow and then senior diplomatic correspondent. Iran for him is an important interlocutor and partner at this point. It is true, it's only the second time he's been abroad. I should say it's quite rare for him to travel abroad at all in the last five or ten years. And now that he's in open confrontation with the West, the places that he's choosing to go to are places where either Russia already has strong ties or he would clearly like to make them stronger. And that seems to be the case with Iran. What do Russia and Iran want from each other in a summit like this? Well, I think in the first place, you have to ask, what does President Putin want? He wants support for Russia as it faces this war in Ukraine and the sanctions from the West that have come from that. So number one is diplomatic support to um, try and get Iran more into his camp, or at least make sure it's not in the West's camp. There's just been another round of talks led by the Americans to try and revive the failed nuclear deal with Iran. It hasn't gone well. So this will be an opportune moment in President Putin's eyes for him to move into Iran and try and make sure that he's the superpower of choice, not the United States. Secondary, uh, in very practical ways, he needs trade routes because of sanctions, 
Number one is oil and gas exits for Russia. Iran is on the seacoast, Arabian Sea. You can put it on a tanker and get it across to customers in India and further east. And a gas pipeline, what's he going to do with all the gas they produce if he can't send it via the pipelines? Most of Russia's gas pipelines go to the West. He needs new pipelines. I would say that's the most important thing. There has been some speculation from the Americans that there are also talks about weapons going on, particularly drones. It is possible if they're, if they're getting low on their stocks that he would also be looking for supplies from other places. And he might think Iran wouldn't be too worried about supplying them to Russia because it's already under sanctions from the West. And, and do Russia and Iran actually share common ground? Or is it a case of my enemy's enemy is my friend, the enemy being the US, of course? I think there is a lot of the enemy, enemy is my friend. They have common interests. I mean, they, the CEO of the Iranian state oil company who signed this memorandum of understanding said, uh, we don't ignore any investment opportunities. So they obviously see this as good business. They'll also have been very aware that President Biden has just made a visit to Saudi Arabia and Israel, two countries in the Middle East, which Iran is most hostile about. Iran might think, well, you know, I need my own backers among the superpowers. And if I've got Russia supporting me, um, if Saudi Arabia is moving closer to the Americans, then that's quite useful. So how concerned should we be that Iran and Russia might be trying to build a bloc that is about reducing Western influence in the world? Well, I I think the longer that this conflict with Ukraine goes on, the more it's going to move beyond the confines of Ukraine's border to draw in other countries on one side or the other. Quite a lot of countries are trying to sit on the fence. Turkey is a good example. A member of NATO, Turkey's been supplying drones to Ukraine. Uh, It caused a bit of a fuss, but it didn't veto Finland and Sweden joining NATO. And there's no indication that Turkey wants to leave NATO. But at the same time, as all has in the last few years, had quite close relations with Russia, particularly in trade. Turkey is the big trade player in the Caucasus and southern Russia. It's always had its eye on it stretching its tentacles into the Caucasus and beyond that into Central Asia if it could possibly get a foothold. So Turkey wants to keep in with Russia, not not alienate it, but at the same time without being actually a partner. And And I think that with Iran too, there's a certain amount of looking to see what's in their interests here rather than getting very close indeed. Historically, these have been two countries, Russia and Iran, which have been quite suspicious of each other. They have been on the same side in the war in Syria. They worked together to reinstate Bashar al-Assad. But the Iranians have always wanted it to be a more religious influence there. They want Hezbollah to play a leading role. The Russians are nervous about that because they're worried about terrorism coming north. So that's a way in which they're a bit wary about Iran. So I think it's very seductive to say, oh, this is turning into a new Cold War where the world is dividing down the middle and there are the allies of Russia on the one side and the allies of NATO on the other. Actually, I think when you look closely at this summit, you can see it's not as simple as that. Bridget Kendall there, Michael Clark. Bridget mentioned the talk that President Putin could be trying to get drones from Iran, uh, though the Kremlin denies this. If it does, how good are Iran's drones? How much difference could they make in Ukraine? 
Well, they could make a difference to the Russian problem in Ukraine, which is that they don't have um, air control, they don't have air superiority at all. Um, Iranian drones are quite sophisticated, actually. It goes back to the late 1980s, and they've got lots of, of them, lots of different types. So the standard drone is a surveillance drone called the, uh, the MOA here. I think that's probably what the Russians will most want, actually, is more surveillance. But they've also got um, a single bomb drone called the uh, Karar, um, which looks like something out of Thunderbirds, actually, but it carries quite a big bomb. And they're developing new drones. They've got lots of different types. But Iran is clearly interested in giving the Russians drone and drones, and the Russians certainly need them. So I suspect that there will be a deal done. And just incidentally, there's been lots of reports of lots of cargo planes making clandestine trips from Tehran uh, into southern Russia in the last few weeks. A lot of stuff is being moved, whatever it is, mm. nobody's sure. But there's a lot of flights um, off the off the schedules, as it were, arriving in southern Russia at the moment. Mm. And Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, suggesting yesterday that Moscow is ready to expand its war aims beyond the east and south of Ukraine because of the supply of long range weapons from the west. The geography is different now, in his words. Do you think that's just rhetoric or is it a sign of confidence about how he thinks it's going? Yes, I mean, Russian war aims in Ukraine publicly have been varying from one thing to another. Remember, the war aims began as conquer Ukraine. Then the war aims became, well, let's just protect our people in the Donbass. Now they're going back to, well, let's do that. Plus, uh, let's take Zaporizhia. Let's take part of the southern area, which we need to do because the West is now getting involved. I mean, all these are sort of waypoints on the basic uh, aim which hasn't changed which is to conquer Ukraine and the Ukrainians have got to accept and the rest of us have got to accept that this is an existential threat for the next couple of generations maybe longer for the, most of this 21st century the Ukrainians have got to live with a Russia that wants to kill them. Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much for your time today and my thanks to all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS SITREP next Thursday. Until then, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and you can catch up with past programmes on the website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. There you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.